mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, and a man was clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Verse 12, then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make known to you so that you would understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days Yet to come. So there's where it gets weird there in verse 13 and 14. So Daniel's been praying, okay? Daniel is in Babylon, now in Persia rule. And he has been praying, and he has had this vision come to him, which often happens to Daniel. He's been praying for understanding. And the first day he's praying, says this messenger angel, God has dispatched an angel to come give him understanding for what's happening. On his way, Daniel's angel, his his messenger, gets in some trouble, okay? Encounters some kind of spiritual conflict with what's termed here in verse 13 and 14, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Prince being a Hebrew word here for for this kind of spiritual being. Um, So he gets caught up there, and then Michael, one of the chief princes, one of the archangels, comes and helps him out. He's kind of stuck there. Michael comes to take over the fight for him. He's able to get away for a few seconds and come talk to Daniel. Um, Now, you'll keep reading, and if we just skip to verse 20, you'll see um, there's more to the story as well. Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, for I will tell you that what is inscribed in the book of truth, there is none who contends by my side except against these, except Michael, your prince. So he's aware that he needs to go back to the battle, because there's going to be some guys coming to reinforce the prince of Persia, and he doesn't want to leave Michael there all alone, okay? It's just this weird story, right? I mean, this is not how we think about the world, this is not how we think about prayer, this is not how we think about God, okay? These angels and demons and spiritual beings fighting, and the spiritual being being over a region or a group of people... And, and all this kind of conflict and things of that nature. And two weeks ago, we just kind of asked this question, which was, what is going on here? What kind of world does the Bible envision you and I to be living in? And I made the argument, we continue to make the argument, that what has happened historically is because of the Enlightenment or because of the scientific revolution, what's happened is Christians have tried to take out as many things from their worldview as they can so as not to be embarrassed by the world around them. Um, and so we have to keep God, okay, we have to keep some supernatural, because otherwise there's really no religion at all. So we keep God, kind of the, the lowest common denominator, and you can watch it historically, and we've scrubbed everything else out. Right? I mean, we don't talk about angels, we don't talk about demons, we don't talk about all these kind of things. It's just embarrassing, right? 
people look at you weird if you start ascribing things to angels and demons. I mean, if you ever imagine being in your workplace, be like, I've been praying for three weeks for my grandmother to get healed. She's not being healed. I guess the angel that was going to come heal her has been in this battle with the, the prince of Australia, okay? And they're over there fighting. And then the prince of Canada, ah, oh, God hates Canada, comes over and they're battling, okay? I mean, you'd look like a fool. People would be like, this is not how the world works, right? But this seems to be the picture that Daniel's painting here in the book of Daniel. And so we look through this theme of uh, spiritual beings throughout the scriptures. It seems to be a pretty consistent element throughout the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the Gospels and the New Testament epistles, the letters. Um, I mean, I pointed out, at a certain point, you've got to get over the, the fear of looking silly to people, right? I mean, if you're a Christian, you believe that a young Jewish man who died is God. It's has been alive for about 2,000 years, so still alive right now. Though he's not with us, we can't touch him and see him. I mean, eventually, you've just got to get over the fact that some of what you believe is a little silly to the world, right? It's, it's not something that's just like, oh, this is plain truth, obvious to everybody. At some point, you have faith, right? At some point, it's been revealed to you uh, by the Spirit. At some point, you, you just embrace the mystery. I mean, the Trinity. You believe in the Trinity. Try explaining that to somebody, right? Try drawing that on the board. I mean, it's just, it's just this... this kind of paradoxical, mysterious thing that, that you and I have been um, drawn into here. And so we kind of looked at just kind of that theme throughout the scriptures. that There seem to be these spiritual free agents in the world who sometimes do good and sometimes do bad. And what I want to do is go back to Daniel 10 and, and kind of draw out two implications, okay? I think the picture we get in Daniel 10 communicates to us primarily that the world is a mysteriously complex place. Perhaps far more complex than we often imagine it to be. Um, so I think even science would communicate this to you, right? I mean, I'm no scientist at all, so I'm not even going to try. But if you look at kind of like advanced physics and stuff like that, I mean, you'd be aware that, that scientists even tell you, I mean, the world is just weird, right? Quantum, quantum mechanics and general relativity and, and quarks. Is it quarks or quirks? There's all kinds of quirks. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird things that happen in the universe that we're just like, that's weird. We would have never guessed that that would be there. I'm told that an atom is made up mainly of space. And so I've, <laughs> I've read before that if you were to take out all the empty space in the entire universe, all the actual physical matter of the universe could fit inside a sugar cube. I mean, it's just kind of all space, but we're sitting on it and it's there. And the universe is a weird place, right? I mean, with all of our science, we still just don't, it just still seems odd to us. The way everything works, and, and the world is just this mysterious and complex place. And the Bible is just kind of backing that up, right? I mean, there's just more happening that when you and I can see, and that we can measure, and we can observe. And sometimes things don't work the way we would expect them, maybe logically, to work. Now, what's happened to those Christians is, in a lot of ways, we try to simplify things and make them cuter for bumper stickers and for kind of quick pop theology and answers to our kids and things of that nature. And it can have negative effects, okay, when that gets deep-rooted and then we start drawing other conclusions from those assumptions. One of the things I think we've done in a large part is we've tried to simplify the way the world works in a very deterministic way. So, so we've tried to, again, when you scrub out everything and there's just God and there's just us, and then you even kind of take us away from the picture, and we start to think the world is the way it is, Simply and solely because of God. And, and, and a lot of times we do this to try to protect God's power, his sovereignty, okay? Um, and, and so you'll see this in, again, things we say to each other, right? Everything has a reason. Everything has a plan, okay? We kind of imagine sometimes the world around us as being solely 
and holy caused by God. This is the exact world that God imagined in this exact moment, and this is what he wanted, so this is why it's here, right? Now, again, the world of the Bible is going to say, well, it's a little bit more complex than that. There are a whole lot of other free agents in the world doing things, influencing the world that we experience. In fact, the whole narrative of the Bible makes no sense if there's not some kind of struggle or conflict in the world. If the world hasn't, at some level, gone somewhere God didn't want it to go, and God is committed to taking it back to where he wants it. I mean, this is the kingdom of God, right? This is the story of Israel, the story of Jesus. This is creation, fall, and then new creation. We were here. Something bad happened, and God is committed to taking us back over here. God looks at the evil around the world and doesn't say, this is my idea, this is what I wanted. He says, this is a mistake. We've got to fix this. We've got to walk out of this. The world is a, a mysterious, a complex place. The picture Daniel paints, I think the picture all of Scripture paints, is that there is this mysterious web of cause and effect throughout creation that should cause you and I to question some deeply held beliefs that we probably picked up from childhood. In fact, one of the things I think about my kind of theological education is often questioning things that I've always assumed have to be true. And often letting the Bible question those things. I mean, I've so assumed that certain things are biblical that I, you kind of screen out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of biblical things to make that fit into your kind of paradigm. And, and occasionally, you just start noticing things and noticing them and noticing them and noticing them. And you go, huh, maybe this is not the Bible's worldview Maybe this is my worldview. And like I said two weeks ago, we've always got to let the Bible's worldview filter ours, not the other way around. I mean, it's so easy to say we know how the world works and then to read the Bible in that way. Say, well, that's not in my world, so I'll interpret it this way or that way or this way or that way. So two things I want to talk about this morning from the picture of the world we get in Daniel 10. Prayer and evil, okay? Prayer and the problem of evil. I think um, there's, these are two big ways that, that, that implications come from, from this truth of of all these spiritual free agents, and then even you and I, the free will that we possess. So both of these topics are obviously very big topics, sprawling topics, lots of questions and lots of avenues we get on to discuss. So fortunately, we'll just touch on both of them here this morning. And if I can have you leaving here with about a dozen more questions than you had when you came in, we'll be a success, okay? So we're all aware what the goal is? Good. All right. Flip with me to James chapter 5. We'll start with prayer. Prayer plays a big role in Daniel. Daniel's a man of prayer. He prays a lot. And God often acts on his prayer. In the same way that these spiritual beings are a big actor in the book of Daniel, Daniel's in the lion's den, and one of these spiritual beings shows up to save him. Prayer is an important part of the book of Daniel. Daniel, in fact, is willing to die to keep up his routine of prayer. He's praying here, and God reacts to his prayer, sends him an angel. I want to suggest that perhaps when we simplify the world, one of the effects of this is that we simplify prayer in a way that's negative, in a way that, that makes us less healthy of Christians. So, um, look at James chapter 5 with me. James 5 verse 13. James says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him... What's the word? Pray. Pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will serve the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. And this next sentence is one worth memorizing, underlining, highlighting. James says, 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's read that again, just listen to it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, energy, as it is working. It's a play on words here. You have two occurrences of this word for energy. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful as it's being powerful, as it's working out. And then he gives an example, okay, from Elijah's life, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a human being, okay, with the same limitations and same abilities and characteristics as we have. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So Elijah prayed, and it was powerful. Elijah kind of, with his prayer, stands against the weather patterns. Okay? And meteorologists everywhere wish they had this kind of skill, right? And, and he stands against it, and for three and a half years, there's no rain. We could have, I should have preached on this uh, fall festival weekend, okay, when we were waiting on the rain to come that afternoon. Elijah, with his prayers, powerfully works against um, the, the chance that rain might come on the earth. Then he prays again, verse 18, and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So he goes in the other direction as well. Elijah prays and something real and powerful happens in the world around him. I want to suggest that prayer is a powerful and important part of the Christian life. Again, James's advice to you, if you're suffering, pray about it. If you're sick, get the elders together, anoint some oil, and pray about it. And then he says, why are you praying? Because it does something. Because you're not wasting your time. Because it's powerful. It affects the world around you. He says, look at Elijah. For three and a half years, he kept there from being rained with his prayers. Not with this chemical he invented that he could disperse in the atmosphere and keep the clouds from forming. No, with his prayers, with his communication with the Lord, he was able to affect the world around him. Now, Christians, by and large, have a big prayer problem. We're, we're just bad at praying, okay? Most of us are bad at praying. If we took a survey and all were honest, I think most would say, I wish I prayed a little bit more. Okay, as a pastor, I can admit this to you, okay? I wish I was a better prayer. I mean, I wish I could do this better. I do think there are some deeply held theological reasons, things we think about prayer that perhaps work against us when we're trying to pray. So the big question you always have with prayer is, why do we pray? Why are we praying? Right? We're very pragmatic people. Okay, We want to know that we're doing something that has an effect. We want to know that we are not wasting our time. If you know me really well, you know one of the things that gets me really mad is if I feel like I'm wasting my time. If, I, if I'm somewhere and I don't understand why I'm there and what it's contributing to the world around me, then I just get so upset. I'm like, I could be doing a thousand other things. All you think about is the to-do list. I just run down through my mind. This and this and this and this and this and this. I, get, I mean, it just frustrates me, right? And sometimes when I'm praying, that's the narrative running through my mind. And I'm spending 30 minutes of, in prayer in the morning. I mean, the, 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 again, the, the voice in my mind is going, man, you could have knocked off these three things. You're bright, you're sharp in the morning. And instead, you're talking to the wall. This is not accomplishing anything. Right? I mean, I could be more effective for God sending this email and sending this text and doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. What's it doing? What's it accomplishing? What am I getting out of this? Is this time well spent? Is this an investment well spent? Well, the scriptures would say yes. I mean, very much yes. No, with no question. No, no strings attached to it. But, but we have a hard time understanding this. Now, the answer to what does prayer do? Why do we pray? has tended to historically fall on one of two ends of a pendulum, of a spectrum. On one end, you have people who say that prayer changes us. The purpose of prayer is for our minds and our souls and our hearts and our ways of living. It affects us. 
And then on the other end of the pendulum, you get people who say, no, prayer affects God, right? It changes God's mind. It changes the, the reality of the world around us. And people bounce back and forth. Both sides have, have good points and have scriptures behind them and things of that nature. As with most pendulums, I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think there's probably some validity to both of these points here. Prayer does transform us. I think prayer effectively transforms us. In much the same way, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you learn a new word, and then later in that week you hear that word like five times. Like, wow, I can't believe I've never heard that word in my life before until the week I learned it, and now I'm hearing it everywhere. Well, chances are you're probably just noticing it more, right? I mean, now you know the word, and so you're not screening it out of your uh, vocabulary when you're listening to people talk. This, if you're like me, this is how prayer works sometimes. And I'll be praying about something about a situation, and all of a sudden I'm noticing that more. All of a sudden I'm more sensitive to that, to that situation. A lot of times, prayer ends up moving me to do things. So I'll be praying for this person, and an idea will pop up, this is how I can help. This is how I can, so it's kind of like a brainstorming session between me and God. It helps motivate me, it helps um, kind of progress me into kingdom action. Prayer transforms us, it does have this transformative effect on us. Now, I think most of us would agree with this. Um, the, the, the pendulum, I think, that's harder for us to accept is that prayer is powerful and works greatly. That things happen in the world because of prayer. For a lot of different philosophical reasons, we have held out on this, right? We think God obviously doesn't need our prayers, obviously doesn't need to, to do anything with us. Now, again, what starts to happen to me is I start to read the Bible. And the Bible just doesn't share this assumption with us. So, so if you're reading the Bible, not once, not twice, I mean, multiple times do God's people talk God out of a plan. Do you remember these stories? God comes to Moses and says, I'm going to kill everybody. Moses says, well, what about this and this and this and this and this? And God's like, okay, I'll do something else. God goes to Abraham and says, I'm about to destroy this whole city. And Abraham goes, well, what about this and this and this and this and this? Okay. There are, if you do the statistics on this, there are more conditional statements in the Bible. If then, right? If you do this, the action will be this on prayer than on any other action. If you pray, God does this. God talking to people says, I will do this. I will destroy it. I will not destroy it. I will do this. I will not do this. I'll free you. I'll not free you. If you don't, I will do this. As if God's actions were contingent on the prayers of his people. Jesus in the Gospels, again, seems to have this assumption. He says what? Ask and you'll receive it. Knock, it'll be answered. Search, the door will be opened up. If anything, for Jesus, what would be surprising, his assumptions for prayer, is not when God doesn't answer a person, doesn't do what we ask, it'd be when he doesn't, right? It's, it would not be when we pray and something miraculous happens, we go, oh wow, how special was that? I mean, God actually did something for our prayers. For Jesus, the, the, the thing that would be outstanding is if he didn't do something. I mean, the assumption is he's going to act. Not only is he, he's going to, he wants to. He's a father who wants to. He says, pray and pray and pray and pray. If you, if you notice, I mean, we even put like opt-out clauses in our prayers. I don't know if you do this. I do this all the time, right? Heal this person, but help them to have peace with the situation and help the doctors to work really well in their lives. We know you're probably not going to heal them. Help us understand what your will is in the situation, right? I mean, we're not really working under the assumption we're going to ask and you're going to do it. That the prayer is powerful. It's going to, it's going to change something. It's going to work on something here. Um, Jesus, again, he, he seems to have the kind of opposite assumption here. 
prayer works, that prayer does something. Prayer actually makes a difference in the world around us. Um, I've been reading through the Gospels pretty closely, and uh, I've noticed a few things. One is, there are all these interesting stories in the Gospels. I think sometimes more interesting than we, than we realize. For instance, are you aware, Jesus does a lot of spit healing in the Gospels. There's just a lot of spit coming out of Jesus' mouth, and it's healing a lot of people in all kinds of different ways. At one time, there's a deaf guy who's mute. He puts his hands in his ears and then spits on his tongue, and the guy can hear and can talk all of a sudden. A classic example of the Bud Light commercial, it's only weird if it doesn't work, right? <laughs> so if you're, if you're blind and mute, or if you're mute and deaf, and I put my hands in your ears and spit on your tongue, and all of a sudden you can hear and talk, we forget about it, right? We move on. If it doesn't work, it just got really weird. <laughs> what is going on here? Right? Jesus, Jesus is healing people. We'll look at a text today, and we'll see some more of this kind of spit healing, as I affectionately term it. Um, but in one story, Jesus... Uh, comes up to someone, and, and that person asks Jesus to heal her, her daughter. And Jesus says, I'm not going to heal your daughter, you're a Gentile. Kind of a harsh <laughs> statement, kind of rude maybe. We think, that's not very polite. He's not from the South. You should make up a lie, passive aggressiveness, okay? This is, you don't just say no to somebody. Well, I would, but I have a doctor's appointment. I can't right now. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do this. And the woman argues with him. Remember this? She talks him out of it. She says, well, why not? He says, well, because I'm here to feed the dogs. Uh, or I'm here to feed, feed my people, the, the Jews, and you don't give the food to the dogs. <coughs> she goes, well, don't even dogs sometimes eat the crumbs on the floor? And he just goes, all right, you got me. And heals them. Right? I mean, it's a very similar picture to what you see in the Old Testament, where someone is talking to God and is able to seemingly affect the future. Is able seemingly to, with their prayers change something in the world around them. So when it comes up to Jesus, God in the flesh, Jesus apparently has a different idea for what he's doing at that moment, but listens to her. She influences, has some say-so, and he responds to her. He gives her something that he apparently wouldn't have otherwise given her. Prayer seems to have this real ability to, to influence and transform the world. I think you see this throughout the scriptures. Now, we have a hard time understanding how this works, okay? Again, we know God is all-powerful. God is outside of time. God understands everything that's going to happen. Um, so, we, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine how we could, with our prayers, in any way affect the future, in any way affect what God has laid out for us. I'd like to suggest this morning that the way it works is much like the free will we've been given with our physical bodies, okay? Um, that the way God set up the universe to work, prayer works in a sense as our ability to influence the spiritual level of reality, it's a way for us to exert power on, on kind of the spiritual realm. We have some say-so in the world. In the same way that you have say-so with your body. So if you see someone hurting in front of you, you have the ability to intervene in that situation. God's given you the ability to create something, a new situation in the world, to go with him towards the kingdom or to go away from him, away from the kingdom. In the same way, I think prayer works. God has, in some mysterious but powerful way, given us the ability to, with our um, assent, with our um, communication to Him, influence, to be able to allow Him to, to do certain things. So Walter Wink, who is this um, remarkable scholar, says this about Daniel 10. He says, The point here in Daniel 10 seems to be that Daniel's intercessions have made possible the intervention of God. Prayer changes us, yes, but it also changes what is possible for God. Daniel's cry was heard on the first day. It opened up a window for God to act in concert with human freedom. It inaugurated war in heaven. 
Again, we get nervous saying that things have made it possible for God to do certain things. At one hand, we want to hold on to this truth that God is able to do whatever he wants, right? But the world we live in is a world where God has given agency to others to exert say-so in his world for good and for bad. It appears that prayer is one of these ways. It's one of the tools he's given human beings to exert say-so in just the way that you can use your time and your money and your resources. Which is why Jesus says, pray and pray and pray. And even though God wants to give you stuff, pray like he didn't. Like he's this judge that doesn't want to listen to you. And so you just keep throwing rocks in his window. He says, pile up prayers. Use all the spiritual energy you have. Again, as if it's needed in the world. So, so we would say this this morning. Christians have a moral responsibility to pray. We have a moral responsibility to pray. For us not to pray would be for us not to use the resources God has given us to work for his kingdom. In the same way that if we see something evil happening around us, we're called to go intervene. We're called to go do something, respond in some way. Bring God's will on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way you and I are called to pray, to influence that kind of spiritual say-so. It's a moral obligation, meaning that if we don't do it, we should feel guilty. We should feel like we have not participated in the responsibilities given to us. This week a friend called and, and said they had a kind of urgent prayer request for their family. And, and right at that moment I stopped everything I was doing and I prayed for them. The reason I prayed, do you want to know why? It's a really holy reason. It's because I would have felt guilty if I didn't, didn't pray. I mean, a few days later, I would have felt guilty. But not guilty because I had lied to them or anything like that. Right? I've done that lots of times in my life. That made me feel guilty. Guilty in the sense that I actually believe my prayers can do something. And in the same way that I'd feel guilty for not giving someone a dollar bill and saying, I hope you get fed, I'd feel guilty for not praying and saying, I hope the situation works out. God has given you spiritual say-so. You have a moral obligation to use it. To pray. To talk. To ask. To intercede. Walter Wink says, history belongs to the intercessors. Who does history belong to? It's the ones who get God's attention. It's the ones who pray to him. We say, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Again, we, we like to imagine, of course God's will is being done. It's God. How can his will not be done? But the whole story of the Bible presupposes that at some level, God's will is not being done. That's why Jesus says, pray for it to be done. He gives us this tool, this tool of prayer. Prayer, James says, works powerfully in in the life of a person who is righteous, who's been given this kingdom say-so and ability to to influence what happens in the world around them. Um, Flip with me to John chapter 9. I think not only does recognizing that the world is a little more complex than we have once realized it was, maybe influence the way we pray, but I think it also influences the way we have to think about evil and the problem of evil. So with the prayer thing, right? I mean, I feel guilty if I didn't pray for that person. Um, But also, I don't know if this ever happened to you. I think this is the way that God works. Oftentimes, not oftentimes, but occasionally I'll wake up during the middle of the night and feel like I need to pray for somebody. And I stop and I pray for them. Sometimes I find out later something was actually happening in that moment, right? God was, I think the Spirit was waking me up to pray for them, to be able to help them in some real sense. If all that prayer does is change me, that can wait till 8 in the morning. Does that make sense? I'm not going to be praying in the middle of the night. But if I think there's something real about prayer, I guess I'm losing some sleep tonight. 
something for me to do. There's another joke out there that says, uh, everyone wants a charismatic friend when they're hospital. Right? The whole prayer just changes you, works great, until you have cancer, and you want to find some people who actually think they can actually change reality with their prayers and have them start praying for you. <laughs> you, you get a whole new robust view of prayer when you actually need God to intervene in a real way in your life. Um, so the problem of evil, I think, is a real thing for Christians that we need to address if you're not familiar with the problem. Um, an all-good God who's all-powerful, yet there's evil in the world. How does that work? It seems like one of these three things cannot be true. If God is all-powerful, he can do whatever he wants to do, and he desires to always do good, then why is the world so messed up? Why is he sat on his hands when he can do good, and apparently he wants to do good? But yet he's not doing good in the world around us. There's all this evil out there. If there's any one thing that would keep me from faith, it'd probably be something in this realm. I think it's a real significant problem. I think it's not something that you and I should take lightly. I think it's something that should trouble us and keep us up at night. I was reading a History of War book this week and came across this quote, which was, if an evil God decided to turn human history into this horrible laboratory to test the limits of human violence without having us go extinct, he couldn't improve upon the 20th century. In the world wars, the genocides, probably the bloodiest century in history, right? I mean, it's easy for us to go to sleep in Sugarland, Texas, and forget the world is an awful place most times. There's a lot of real evil in the world. I mean, it was not long ago that the civilized world watched the Holocaust. I mean, this was not very long ago. If that doesn't make you squirm a little bit and wonder, okay, what's going on with God and what's going on with His goodness and His power... I mean, I don't think you've really absorbed the problem yet. I think this is a, a real issue we have, to, we have to deal with. Now, again, we simplify the world in all kinds of different ways, and I think it causes us to come up with some wrong answers to the problem of evil, to why bad things happen in the world, why kids get cancer, why people are born with deformities and disabilities and those kind of things. John 9, I think, is a great passage for us to talk about this and then explore, again, maybe some truths come out of Daniel 10, particularly because John 9 is often interpreted, I think, in the wrong way, and so we'll uh, circumvent that. I'll subvert that here this morning. Um, John 9, we'll pick up in verse 1 here. This is Jesus. Again, get ready. Some spit healing coming your way. As promised. 9-1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. A little baby boy born blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the, the assumption here, underlying their analysis of suffering is that suffering comes from sin. At one level, correct. But in the Bible, you're never able to do that on an individual level. So you can say cancer exists because of sin, because creation as a whole is rebelled, but you can't say ever in the Bible that person has cancer because that person sinned. Does that make sense? See the difference there? I mean, it's really easy to, to get confused in that web there. The Bible never individualizes the correlation between sin and suffering. All suffering exists because of all sin, but specific cases of suffering are never able to be traced back to specific sins. So the question of Jesus is, hey, this baby boy was born and something was wrong in his life. Was it his fault or was it his parents' fault? There's something bad in the world, so it has to go back to uh, free agency, um, not God's, and God punishing that person. So Jesus answers them in verse 3. It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, so over to, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while this day night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, the, the key verse here is verse 3. Jesus answers them. He says, You're wrong on both of these. Wasn't his sin, wasn't the sin of his parents. He says, But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, if you pay attention here, this is a very ambiguous phrase. This is not clear grammar at all. Okay? Your ESV does this on purpose. Most Bibles do this on purpose because it's not very clear Greek at all. Okay? We don't know exactly what's happening here. What most people do, the, most people interpret this as saying this. It wasn't this guy's sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. It was because God wanted to heal him later. So this guy is not blind because he did something wrong or because his parents did something wrong. It's because God wanted it. God wanted him to be blind so that this could occur. Again, this kind of reinforces our oftentimes kind of cliche. Everything has a reason, right? You have cancer for a reason. God, in some weird way, caused this or allowed this in this kind of direct way because he has a plan for this. This was drawn up by God. Now, in the Greek, what you have here is a Hena clause plus a verb in a subjunctive mood, okay? Everyone tracking with me? We're all on board? Do some diagrams. Let's draw some sentences, okay? Basically, what this comes down to is it's a construction that can mean one of two things in Greek. It can mean a purpose, a purpose clause, or a command clause, okay? Most Greek scholars think John 9, verse 3, should be a command clause, not a purpose clause, which is how we normally interpret it. So in a purpose clause, you read it, it wasn't this man, it wasn't his parents. The purpose of him being blind is so that God could do it, with implication being that God made him blind. A command clause reads like this. It was not this man who sinned nor his parents, but now let the works of God be manifest in his life. So Jesus doesn't even respond to the question except say you're wrong. It's probably the wrong question to begin with. It wasn't his sin, it wasn't his parents. Watch though what God wants to do when encountering this evil. God doesn't want to explain it. God wants to fix it. God wants to respond to it. The works of God being manifest in his life. This fits in very nicely with every other story we get of Jesus in the Gospels. Not one place in the Gospels does Jesus come to someone who's suffering and say, God has a plan for you. This is God's idea. It's mysterious. You don't understand it right now, but it'll all work out. Jesus always shows up, sees it, and says, this is not what God wanted for you. Get out of here. He says, now the kingdom has come to you. Now God's will is being done in your life without this sickness, without this illness, without this demon. It's never God's purpose for that person. It's something to be fought against, not accepted. And there's such a big difference between this. Never once, anywhere in the Gospels, does someone come to Jesus and ask him for healing, and Jesus refuses them. seems it's always Jesus' will to heal, to fix it when it's wrong. Never once is he okay with it being like that. This is not part of how he views the universe as supposed to be working. There are two places where you could kind of make the argument. One, with a Gentile woman who ends up arguing her way out of it. Then two, here. People say, well, look here. He says, God did that. Again, I think, take a couple Greek classes, come back. You're making a big theological jump here from this one verse. doesn't fit in, I think, with the rest of Scripture. So, the problem of evil, which I think is a real problem. I think we've got to struggle with this. I don't think it's a problem concerning the character and nature of God. In a complex world, it's not always easy to have a one-on-one correlation between cause and effect. 
oftentimes what we've done to try to protect God's power is we've attributed bad things to him. We've said, well, God's the cause of this because we want God to be in control. When in fact, I think the scriptures would pretty consistently say evil is the cause of that. Sin, rebellion, Satan, things not God are the cause of that. God's character has been fully revealed in his son, Jesus. For Jesus and for the early Christians, evil wasn't a problem that they had to contemplate or moralize over. It was something to be revolted against. It was something to be fought against. Evil was not a reality they tried to explain. It was a reality they tried to eradicate. That they assumed was there for a variety of different reasons and worked against. But never once anywhere do you see someone going, I guess this is part of God's plan. The whole point of the entire scriptures is it's not part of his plan. He didn't want it at the beginning. He doesn't want it at the end. And everywhere we see him working, he's working against it. This place is about in really pastoral, practical ways. No kid with cancer. Most of the things Christians say to him assume God gave him that cancer. And they sound really nice. And they protect God's power. I mean, they never make us question that God's in control of every little detail of our lives. And we don't notice this, but it keeps me up at night. But God wants the little boy to have cancer? No wonder the kingdom's taken so long. God can't figure out among himself what he wants. Jesus is working against cancer. The Spirit empowers healings as well. But the Father apparently thinks it can be a good idea in some cases. I mean, you have this really confused trinity who's not able to figure out what direction I should be going in. In the Bible, God is wholly committed to eradicating his world of evil. There's one direction that the triune God takes. He has one plan. He has one goal. He doesn't go back and forth and back and forth on himself. I mean, we, we shouldn't let this problem of all malign God to where now you have this God who, who's morally deficient. Why? Because the universe is a complex place, people. There are all kinds of free agents that contribute to all kinds of things in the world. It's not easy to pin it down. And we shouldn't start second-guessing things about God's character. We should see God revealed in Jesus, see the direction of him moving the scriptures and go, this is where God's going, I need to jump on board and go this direction as well. I mean, this is the book of Job. I think we misinterpret Job in the exact same way. The point of Job is not that God's in control, God gave Job these problems and Job needs to shut up about it. The point of Job is that God's working it out. God's wise enough to figure out the solution. God rejects both of those options, that Job sinned or that he did it. God says, both of those are wrong. I'm wise, though. You're not. And God, again, says, there are all these things in the universe that you don't understand. He doesn't say, you don't understand me. He says, you don't understand the Leviathan. You don't understand the stars. You don't understand the seas. I'm the one battling all these evil things in creation. So let me figure it out. He says, trust my wisdom. The, the book of Job is not about sovereignty. It's about It's about wisdom. And God emphatically rejects the solution that he's the cause of the problem or that Job's sin is the cause of the problem. God says, don't question it because there's a lot of things involved. The world's a very complex place. And Job doesn't realize that when you're trying to make these simple one-on-one kind of correlations here. Again, we don't think of the world this way. We think of the world as just occurring the way exactly it happened in God's mind. And so when things go bad, things went bad, and apparently God wanted it. <clears throat> apparently God decided that was the best course of action for the world. 
Again, I think a, a robust biblical worldview has us rethinking some of these conclusions. We would await the sure accomplishment of God's ultimate victory. We know the end of the story. While we also join him in his mission of reconciliation right now. One of the ways we join him, incidentally, is with prayer. We become activists in the spiritual world. We pray God's future into being. History belongs to the intercessors, Walter Wink says. So in Daniel 10, and really in the whole book of Daniel, you get this this world that's different from our world. And perhaps our world is a little bit more complex than we've often imagined it. And perhaps prayer is more of a moral responsibility than we've, we've sometimes imagined it. And perhaps evil is more complex than we've imagined it. I mean, the problem with the evil, I would like to suggest, is not in the character and nature of God. It's in the complexity of the universe. The problem is that we can't always figure out where things are coming from, why they're there. What we do, though, is realize what God's heart is towards evil and join him in that. There's no duplicity in the heart of God, though. He's against what's wrong in creation. He's fighting against it from the first chapter of the Bible to the last chapter of the Bible. And so we see Jesus bringing the kingdom, praying for us, inviting us to pray for the kingdom to come. We see Jesus working out the kingdom, and we see him calling his disciples to, to work out the kingdom as well. We don't, we don't live lifestyles of res- resignation when we've used this language in the past. We live lifestyles of revolt. We don't just sit back and go, I guess this is how the world has to be. We go, no, I'm going to pray a different world into existence. I'm going to act a different world into existence. With the say-so that God has given me, I'm going to join him in his heart for the kingdom to be accomplished and present here on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me?